Turn with me to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. Um, we are continuing in our series in Daniel, um, which is about Daniel and his friends trying to live or maybe even just survive as exiles in a foreign land that at most times goes against the ways that they are following, which is um, the way of their one true God, Yahweh. But as we get to chapter 4, just kind of some interesting details behind this chapter. is It's one of the most unique chapters in Daniel, but also in the entire Bible, because it's written by King Nebuchadnezzar in his perspective. If you see in the chapter, there's a lot of eyes. So it's written from a first-person view of him. Um, it's a f- personal testimony of how he encountered God. And it may be one of the only few chapters in Scripture where an individual who might not be a follower of God is actually kind of the one it's, uh, he's kind of speaking about or speaking from that vantage point. But as we see here, the story reveals one of the most insidious parts of our human hearts. The seed that has collapsed empires, destroyed corporations, and torn apart families and marriages. And it's, it's some would say the root of all sin, the sin of pride. So I'm going to do that today. I'm going to kind of walk through the, it's a pretty long chapter, but I'm going to intentionally read parts of um, it in whole, in chunks, and kind of walk through how we can understand it, and also see how we can relate with this story of Nebuchadnezzar. But before I kind of jump into this text, I do want to ask God's blessing. Let me just quickly pray over um, the time where we hear the word of God. And so let's pray. Father, we come before you and this word. Um, God, the story of Nebuchadnezzar, which is a quite powerful one, God, but also it's quite revealing to our own hearts. And so, Father, I just ask for your mercy. Um, I ask, God, that you would give us all really tender hearts um, to hear what you have to say. I I know all of us, all of us, God, struggle with pride in some form or fashion. Um, And I just ask, God, that you would give us your grace to hear and not, um, uh, I guess, not really debate if we are prideful or not but that we would really hear your word um, this, this afternoon. In Jesus' name we pray. Uh, amen. Um, now, if you just go to Daniel 4, chapter, chapter 4, verse 1, you look and it begins with Nebuchadnezzar announcing to all peoples, nations, and languages. And it says in verse 3, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Now, because this is a testimony that Nebuchadnezzar writes, um, the story is kind of in, uh, it's, it's kind of after this, and he kind of looks backwards, right? This is kind of the main part where he sit, where he kind of gives the proclamation of praise. But you notice that in chapter 4, if you're on your Bible, on your phones, you see the, there's two psalms that really kind of bookend the chapter. And what I want to do is kind of mainly focus on the story part, the narrative part of um, Daniel 4. And so let me just first start by reading verses 4 through 18. Um, verses 4 through 18 here. Um, and then I'll kind of talk about it a little bit, read again, talk about it. And I kind of want to help us to understand really what's going on in this story here. So Daniel 4, verse, uh, verse 4. It says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. 
Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came, came in, and I told them the dream. But they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Balthazar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Balthazar, chief of the musicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the vision of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. Verse 13, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said, Thus, chop down the tree and Lop off its, uh, lop off its branches, loop off its branches. I think, um, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze. Amid the tender grass of the field, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Balthazar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of the kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. That's a lot. But the first lesson, I have three lessons here that we can learn about pride in the story, but the first lesson is that the Lord exposes human pride. You know, in our story, Nebuchadnezzar is found at ease in his home, prospering in his palace. Now, this obviously conveys that Nebuchadnezzar was living in luxury. He was the most powerful man in the world. But what's more important here is to recognize that at this period of his time, it's probably the end of his life. Now, um, if you look in history, um, most likely this is the case because most of Nebuchadnezzar's life was done throughout war and battles. So he's not really relaxing in his home. So if he is actually relaxing in his home, it's most likely the end when he has essentially conquered all of his enemies, Egypt being the last one. And so what we see here is that he's at the peak of his power and prosperity. But then he has this dream, better yet, a nightmare, that switched his mind of ease to fear. So much that he gathers everyone to figure out what this interpretation is. And if you look in verse 19, he calls Daniel, which is he's known as Balthazar. That's his um, Babylonian name. And in verse 19, Daniel, if you look in the middle there, he says, was dismayed for a while because he knows this dream is not a good outcome for Nebuchadnezzar. So let me read again. Let me jump back into text and read from verse 20 to 27, which is Daniel's interpretation of the dream. So starting from verse 20, Daniel says, The tree you saw which grew and became strong 
so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade and whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who has grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens and your domain to the end of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with the band of iron and bronze, in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of the heaven, and let his portion be with the beast of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven among the men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of the heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for the time that you know that heaven rules. Verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and let your iniquities be let your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So this dream, it's a warning to King Nebuchadnezzar. Because as this prosperous tree that covers the entire kingdom, he may get cut down as verse, as verse 17, or also we see it in verse um, uh, that you, uh, in verse, I think 22 or 23 here, where he says in verse 17, it's the same thing. It says that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. It's a warning that Nebuchadnezzar's pride has gone too far, that he believes that all of his accomplishments were, were not given to him by God, but that he earned them. Nothing was accomplished by his merit. And as God is trying to remind him, and now Daniel here in verse 27, that if you don't turn from your prideful ways, if you don't repent of your sin, if you don't start showing mercy to the oppressed, those that are, are under and part of your kingdom, Maybe God will relent and not punish me. Daniel calls King Nebuchadnezzar to repent, to not only think of himself, but to treat others and to also remember who gave him this position. This dream was ultimately God giving Nebuchadnezzar a second chance. Now, before I go further, um, let me define pride. What's pride? Now, um, pride has many different interpretations and definitions. In Hebrew, it has this imagery of being kind of too high. But in Greek, it has this idea of being kind of puffed up with oneself. Um, or more concisely, I have a definition up here. Pride is a preoccupation of oneself. It's my importance, my achievements, my status, my possessions over others, and more importantly, over God. And the difficult thing about pride, especially in Nebuchadnezzar's case, and even in our own cases, is that no one likes to be confronted of their pride. No one does. Let me give you an example here. Imagine it's Christmas, 
right? Christmas morning, and you're going down to open the presents, and you're excited, like everyone should be on Christmas morning. And then it's your turn to open up these gifts, and you get to open them one by one. The first present you open is from your mother. And you open it, and you're excited, and it's a book. Awesome, ah, awesome. It's a book, right? But then on the book, you turn it over, and it says, dieting made easy. I wonder what my mom is trying to tell me. Or next present is from your brother. And in there, there is a gift card. In that gift card, it's to match.com. Now you're thinking, okay, now I'm guessing he thinks I need some help in my dating life. Uh, okay, next present. The last present is from your aunt, and it's cash. Awesome. But then you see this little note inside, and it says, this is for your rent, because I know you can't afford it. Now, after a while, you kind of get the message that these are kind of nice gifts, but they're really hard to swallow. Why? Because you have, in order to accept these gifts, you have to swallow your pride to accept them. They force us to acknowledge that something might be wrong with us, or we might need help in some way, or we're not living in the correct way that our family wants us to live, or God wants us to live in. Now imagine that God is giving you this kind of gift for Christmas. What would it be for you? Would it be a book on selfishness or being a better friend or being a better spouse or being a better employee? Would it be a car telling you to stop comparing yourself to so many others with better looks or um, with better things they have or better accomplishments? Would it be a picture of your thoughts containing anger or greed or hate or, you know, fill in the blank? Perhaps God is using his word or some friends or a community or a church pointing out an area that he wants you to address. Are you listening to him? Pride is wanting to say to that gift giver, you're wrong. I don't struggle with that. I don't need help with that. But as Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, once said that if that keeps happening, Pride becomes the carbon monoxide of sin. It silently and slowly kills you without you even knowing it. So for Nebuchadnezzar, God gave him a second chance. And now, as we see in verse 28 to 33, let me just read this now. This is what he does after that second chance. Verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among the men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar, he was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as the eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's 
claws. This happens after just 12 months. 12 months after Daniel interpreted the dream. So you have to consider, God was pretty patient here. It took probably the most prideful thing someone could ever say for God to finally punish Nebuchadnezzar. It happens on the roof of his royal palace. Now, you have to kind of picture here. Nebuchadnezzar, his kingdom was one of the most glorious kingdoms. I mean, people refer to Babylon as one of the most powerful kingdoms ever to exist in history. And he's viewing the entire city of Babylon here. Now, um, you don't have pictures of it, but you have to remember that Babylon was an immaculate city. He will be seeing a sea of buildings. Um, it's estimated about 53 different temples were in the city, um, palaces. He had three of his own, and wealth and beauty. And probably the most impressive piece was the seven wonders of the world, one of the seven wonders of the world, which was the Hanging Gardens, which was in that city as well. I have some pictures here, but they don't you know, do justice, but just kind of giving you an idea that he's seeing all of this, and he's saying, I built this. I built this. And you have to remember that, um, that Babylon um, was also really unique because as archaeologists have dug up the city, what they've noticed that many or if not most of the bricks they uncovered had an inscription in each one of the bricks, and it was Nebuchadnezzar's name. Um, and it kind of speaks to how he was very concerned about who was the one that would be remembered about this city. But as we see throughout this entire book of scripture and even today, that God will not share his glory with another. And this leads me to my second lesson. The Lord will humble our pride. The Lord will humble our pride. And I don't think this is the most popular message for um, our day and age, but this is exactly what happens in Nebuchadnezzar. Because of his pride and his final self-exaltation, the Lord places this delusion on him. Now, I, we don't really know exactly what happened to him or why or you know, psychologically or emotionally, but what we know is that he becomes kind of animal-like, that in his actions and appearance and even his mind, and it wasn't a pretty sight. Even the descriptions of being hair like eagle's feathers or nails like bird's claws or how he ate grass, something was upon him and something that God had placed upon him. And if you notice, the splendor of glory that he once was in, and now he becomes almost less human, and how quickly God can do that to the most powerful man in the world. Now, this is the story, as I mentioned, that most of us don't like to hear, because it implies that if you stay long enough in your own pride, if there are areas in your life that you aren't willing to confess and to confront, God may need to humble you. Now, you know, last week I opened up a little bit about my high school experience, and so why not? I'm going to do it again. Um, I'm going to share a little bit about how I loved basketball um, growing up. I loved basketball. Um, way more than football. I played since third grade, and in middle school, I was on the A team, if you can believe it. Yeah, like three different teams, and I was on the A team. So I was on the good team, if you can think about that, okay? Um, and, I, and, you know, I wasn't one of the stars, but I played a lot. I thought I was pretty good. And so when freshman year came around, um, tryouts began for the basketball team. Now, there were about like 35 guys who tried out for the team, and I um, was like, 
I'm going to make this team. It's, it's a piece of cake. I was on the A team. All these other guys were on the B or even the C team. And so, you know, tryouts began. And tryouts, uh, I don't know if you ever did sports tryouts in high school, but it was rough. I remember coming home every single night and having to ice my calves because that's how much we ran that day. And so after about a two weeks of tryouts, um, the coach kind of pulls me aside. And he says, um, no, you're doing well. And I'm like, yeah, of course, I know I'm, I know I'm doing well. Uh, and, and after about like, you know, kind of talking about my game and about the team, um, he goes, you know, Noah, basically this is what's going to happen. You are right now on the borderline of making the team. You'll probably make it, but um, you probably won't play much, and if at all. And at that moment, um, my pride and my ego went from like 100 to like a negative 10. And I, I remember at that moment, I, <laughs> I, I wanted to cry, but I didn't. Um, but I, you know, I sucked it up. And I, I realized that when I think about moments of when things can humble you, for me, even at that moment, I still remember it. That was so humbling for me. And looking back, the problem, which you probably noticed, was that I thought I was better than I actually was. I thought I was better than I actually was. And the sad reality is that for all of us in this room, if we're all human, we might not boast like Nebuchadnezzar on the rooftop of all his glory, but many times we think we are better than others. I mean, all the time. We compare all the time. We compare our salaries, our possessions, or our jobs with others. We compare our marriages, our families, our friend groups with others. We compare our bodies, our looks, or how well we can craft that argument or that quote or that post that we have on social media. We compare even our spirituality things. We compare how much we come to church or how much we give or how many we do good deeds or how well we serve people. And it goes on and on and on. We compare all the time. And can I be real here? Um, the hardest thing about our age, or the, the period that we live, is that every time we pick up our phone, I think it gets so difficult not to compare. There's so many things that we can compare, even emails that we get, even advertisements, social media, constantly we are tempted to being, to comparing ourselves. And I think it's honestly more subconscious now than we like to believe. We think that we're better than someone or that we deserve more than they do or that they're not all that great. And pride begins to kind of seep in. Now, sometimes I think the reverse is also true. Sometimes people don't think that they're better than others. But um, I also think another way of pride is when we sometimes believe we are always the worst, where we continue to see ourselves as worthless, when we constantly self-degrade ourselves or self-demote ourselves. Now, in this case, now I understand that sometimes people do that out of insecurities or out of um, genuine needs of being vulnerable and things like that. But most times when we are doing that, we are still prideful because we're still looking at ourselves. We're saying, look at me, look at my deficiency, look at look how I don't have much. Focus on me, 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 me. And that is always the foundation of pride is when we can't help but look away from me. 
Now, pride is really complex, and I don't have time to get into all of it, but I found this kind of helpful six forms of pride. Um, this would be a slide up here. Um, these, I think pride can come up in a lot of different ways, but uh, maybe one is more uh, pr prominent for one of you all, but pride as self-exaltation, that's when you believe all credit is mine, like Nebuchadnezzar. Pride as self-promotion, when you're looking for approval from others. Um, social media is terrible for this, in my opinion. Um, pride as self-justification. This is even more dangerous when you're thinking that your credit should be from God. Think of the tax collector in Matthew where he's saying that I'm justified. Now, these are kind of um, a bit more difficult to kind of see, but pride as self-degradation where you're saying it's only about my failures or, or my needs or my struggles. Uh, pride as self-demotion or self-comparison where we're kind of fishing for affirmations because of our insufficiencies. Um, and pride as self-condemnation when you're your harshest critic. Um, I know I wrestle with this. And um, these are many ways pride can come in our lives. And I want to make sure we understand this because it's not just the way that Nebuchadnezzar is struggling here. Pride is not just on the rooftop saying, all glory is mine. Pride is much more um, just insidious. It's more, it's, it's secret. It's, it comes up more than we recognize it. And... Um, the reality, though, is, is that if this continues, pride will eventually, I think, will lead to times where you'll be humbled. Um, because the opposite of pride is humility. And to be clear, humility is not self-degradation or thinking that you are less than. Humility, as C.S. Lewis once said, is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Um, and that means thinking of others more. And the reality is that God, in his loving grace, will put things in your life to humble you because he wants to shower you with his love and grace. He'll bring a boss to give you a bad report. He'll bring a friend to call you out. And will even bring physical difficulties or circumstantial difficulties that you can't control to show you that your pride won't be um, sufficient. And he reminds us in 2 Peter 3, 9, that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's ultimate desire for Nebuchadnezzar, for you and for me, is that we should repent of our pride and recognize who ultimately deserves the glory. Because as C.S. Lewis continues to write about pride and humility, he says, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see anything that is above you. God humbles us so that we can ultimately know him. Pride is incompatible in any relationship. Just think of any good friendship or marriage or co-working relationship you have. If there's pride in that relationship, you don't like it. You're not attracted to it. Now let's see what happens at the final part of our story. What happens with Nebuchadnezzar? In verse 34, we read, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. 
For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. My last lesson of pride is that the Lord restores those who repent of their pride. The Lord will restore those who repent of their pride. At the end, Nebuchadnezzar, he surrenders, he repents. That's the final psalm of praise he gives, where he says every single creature on earth accounts to nothing, that God does as he will, and that all the kingdom glory that I have was given to me by God. This is probably the most authentic worship that Nebuchadnezzar gives in his lifetime because it's out of humility and not pride. And if you go back to Daniel 2 and Daniel 3, you notice he gives some praise to God after the dream interpretation, after the fiery furnace. But if you look at those instances, they're not done out of humility. They're done out of, honestly, a little prideful ways, but done more out of awe. He's just kind of amazed by this God, but he's never come down to a humble posture to actually lead him to authentic praise and worship. What we see at the end of this story, and there's so much more that we can talk about, but just kind of as we see wrapping up in this story, we see that without humility, without repentance, God cannot restore the prideful. God can't restore us. Because at its core, pride is telling God, I don't need you. I don't need you. I'm better than you. And though we'll never say that out loud, there are many instances we're saying it in our heads. But when that happens, repentance is impossible. Reconciliation is impossible. Relationship with God is impossible. So for each one of us, we have to know that pride is in our hearts. We are not better than Nebuchadnezzar here. Pride is in our hearts. It comes up in many different kinds of ways. But the beauty of the gospel story that comes a few hundred years later after Daniel is that Jesus, the creator of the world, the sustainer of the world, the ruler of all things, the only one that could say, this is all mine, instead of basking in that glory, Jesus came near to each one of us by humbly confining himself into a little embryo, to becoming a babe, to come not in might and power and pride, but in humility as a poor Jewish refugee. And as he then would come, and he would not say that he's the king of the world, but he would serve the least of these. He would serve those who are lost, who are broken and in need. He would teach people who wanted to hear more. He would wash the disciples' feet, and then he would give up his life on the cross and resurrect in three days to make a way for you and me to have new life. He would make a way by being humble and dying on the cross for us prideful people to know him, to be restored, 
like King Nebuchadnezzar, to be called sons and daughters of the King Most High. So that we don't have to keep living in this rat race that we live in this world. This world that we live in, it's honestly a battle of who's the most prideful, who gets the most, who has the most, who accomplished the most, who looks the best, has the most friends. We're trying to prove ourselves or constantly being fixated on me, me, me. The gospel message is where Jesus says, it's not about you, it's all about me, but look what I have done for you. That you are, that you are, that you can say, I need help. That you can say, I need someone to save me. That you can say, I can't do it on my own. And when you get to that point, Jesus says, I will be there with you. That only when you come into that broken place, in that place of desperation, Jesus says, you will then identify with me and I will be able to save you from your sins and give you a life that is better than anything else in this world. Church, in order to follow Christ, we have to be people who embody humility. We have to be people who are actually willing to say we're prideful, that I'm wrong, that I need help, I'm broken. Only for those people can they realize that Jesus is the only answer to their, to their sins. And, you know, for us, church, um, there's so much more on humility that I can kind of talk about and share upon, and there's so much about pride that actually comes up in our lives. And even looking at my own story in my life, not just my freshman basketball tryouts, but if I look out throughout all my life, there are so many moments of pride in my life um, as a pastor, um, as a father, even looking at, like, those people that I graduated from, at, 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 from college, my high school friends, people that I see online, even just you know, other pastors or other churches, it's, it's, it comes up in so many different ways. Um, but when we look at Jesus and the way that he came down onto earth for us, there is something just quite humbling. I, I just, there's no words that can really explain what Christ did for his people and how he could have just all his glory and he could have taken it all, but yet he comes down um, to humble himself, um, to die for us, and to give us new life. And the way that I want to kind of wrap up our time um, is, um, is that, you know, humility is also something that we don't, that's not just required for us to accept the gospel, but it's also an outworking of our faith as we're in the gospel. Humility comes out as we live our lives, as we serve in our workplaces, our families, and, and wherever God has called us to do. Um, pride is often like flashy and honestly dangerous, but humility is simple, unnoticed, but yet very powerful. My question that I want to kind of challenge you on a practical sense of humility is, how can you embody humility a little bit more this week? You know, I think for humility, it's, it's honestly the things that don't get noticed that are humble. It's that private time of prayer and worship that you take in maybe, you know, throughout the week. It's that offer to wash the dishes or take out the trash or clean the bathroom, even when that's not your responsibility. It's that asking your neighbor or your classmate or your coworker that if there's anything, you know, do you need anything and actually listening to them and caring about them. It's even simple as just picking up trash on the streets when no one notices. It's about those simple, small things. 
because pride won't magically disappear, folks. But as you slowly just sow seeds of humble acts, I believe God will honestly see that. Um, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon on how we live as humble people as Christ has given to us. Um, and so kind of in light of this, and in light of kind of as Nebuchadnezzar kind of says this psalm of prayer and worship, what I want to kind of wrap us up with, and I want to invite the band up, is um, to spend some time in humble prayer. Um, as I kind of mentioned, prayer is probably one of the most humble acts we can do as people, because in prayer we say, God, I need you. God, I need help. And I can't do it on my own. And I'm not better than I am. And so um, on the screen, you'll see just kind of three areas you can be praying for. So the band will kind of play um, some music here. But what I want you to do is take a moment. Take, um, I, I want to take at least five minutes here. It's a long time, but uh, take five minutes. And I would love for us just to spend some focused time on prayer. Praying, some of us may need to repent. Um, some of us can honestly remember those moments uh, throughout the week where we were prideful, where we thought we were better than somebody else, or we thought this person was um, not that great. Take some time to repent and ask God to forgive you, as our God is faithful and just to forgive you if you confess your sins. Some of us need to ask God to teach us the ways of humility, that God would um, just remind us and help us throughout the week to live lives of humility, to show it in the small things throughout the week. And lastly, some of us may just need to sit in silence and wait on the Lord. It's been a long week. It's been stressful. It's been busy. The next, this upcoming week is even busier. So you just need to sit and wait. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to offer up a word of prayer, and then we're going to sit and pray for five minutes. Take it as you will, um, however you want to do it. In about five minutes, um, Tim will invite us up to sing one final song. All right? Let me pray. Father, we are, um, God, just forgive us. Um, I don't think there's any single one of us um, in this room that didn't have a prideful thought all week. Um, God, we, uh, yeah, we, we are so focused on, on me, on me, on me. Um, sometimes we're tempted to say, I deserve this or I deserve better. Uh, but yet, how can we ask that, God, when Jesus, our Lord and Savior, um, took the, the, most, the, the lowest position for our sake? And so, Father, I just ask, um, humility is not a kind of a one-hit wonder, but it's a, it's a daily consistent, faithful uh, step, um, one step at a time. It's just faithful uh, prayer here, uh, picking up trash there, a good deed there, or just unnoticed things there. And so, Father, I just ask that in this time of prayer, God, that you would, um, that your spirit would speak to us, that your spirit would convict us, that your spirit would challenge us and remind us of who you are and how you love the humble. You give grace to the humble, but you are you can definitely humble the proud. And so God, if we, whatever stage we're in right now, I just pray that you would help us in this prayer time. Um, even if it's in the moment of silence that we need, may we just take that moment of silence to just wait and listen on you. God, we need you in this season.
God, we need you more and more every single day. We are so lost and so prideful to ourselves. Help us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.